The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. It's nice to see you all, and uh, it's nice to be here. Some of you may know me. I'm Diana Clark. Uh, I teach here on Monday nights, and uh, here I am on a Sunday morning. And some of you may be listening to Gil's 7 a.m.s, and you may know that I substitute for him a couple of weeks ago when I talked a little bit about poetry and practice. And I like to like extend a little bit what I spoke about then. And if you didn't hear that, it's perfectly fine too. But what I'd like to talk about is the way that uh, practice meets our life. And I know certainly for me at the beginning, there was a clear distinction between practice and life. I would uh, listen to Dharma talks or read Dharma books, and they really touched me and felt like something really powerful was there. But then I would just go off into my life, my regular life, right? Whatever that was. But as the more I read Dharma books, listened to Dharma talks, and meditated, the more I started to see that these two things, kind of like practice and life, started to come closer and closer together. And the distinction between them started to blur. And things that I thought were, you know, like these conceptual understandings that I had started to just show up in the way that I was being in the world. And I've told this story a number of times, but uh, a really clear example for me is this idea of behaving ethically. I thought of myself as an ethical person. I wasn't going around stealing things or harming people. But I was doing an awful lot of little white lies. Just to, you know, when I looked at it, to make myself look better or not to hurt the feelings of other people. And and so when I started to, like, take seriously, well, what is this thing about the Buddhist life, talking about, you know, behaving ethically and this wish to not harm others? And I said, okay, I'm going to, Stop these little white lies, such as, oh, I'm sorry I'm late. The traffic was really bad. The traffic wasn't bad. I just was disorganized. (laughs) And then when I realized that I, okay, I'm going to have to say why I'm really late, I started to get more organized. Because I didn't want to have to lie. And there's all these small ways in which I just started to, you know, treat the people that I were meeting with respect, showing up on time. And that just started to shift a little bit my life and how the way that I was showing up. So this small thing was kind of like how my practice and life started to come together and, you know, how we... Now here we are all these years later and I find myself in the seat as a Dharma teacher certainly not expecting that way back when. So I'd like to talk a little bit about this, you know, when practice meets life. And what does that mean? How does it show up? 
First of all, I'd like to say that there's a way in which we can practice. There's different ways in which we might approach practice or understand practice. One way is that there's particular steps, there's directions, there's things that we do. 16 steps of anapanasati. One, two, three, and go through the way. Or maybe there's, like, we have to balance the five faculties, okay? Is energy, concentration, wait, what was the other one? You know, often we can't keep them in our minds. Or this real clear set of there's lists, and there's ways to practice. And we have a certain direction and a certain approach in which we practice. And certainly this works in other areas of our lives, in our professional life, in our educational life. And it it works in our practice life, too, until it doesn't, right? So that's certainly one way to practice beneficial, supportive, appropriate. But I also want to mention that there's another way to practice And this is with the same directionality, with the same sense of more freedom and more ease, but instead being, I don't know, being supported by lists and directions, it's more supported by a sense of feeling, experience. This way leads to more freedom. And when I behave or experience things this way, it leads to less freedom, more dukkha. This way feels more spacious, easeful, open, expansive. This other way feels a little more forced and pushing. So feeling our way with practice. Not so much a conceptual understanding, but more just experiencing And then I want to say that the Buddha, before his uh, awakening, right before he had this insight into the Four Noble Truths that characterized his awakening, this understanding about dukkha, he describes what it was like right before he had this life-changing insight. And he describes that his mind was malleable and wieldy. So there's this sense that there's not just one way but the sense of flexibility to what's appropriate, what's happening. So there's a way that which we can practice in which it is about the directions and these numbered lists and these conceptual understandings and a way in which we're feeling, experiencing our way towards greater peace, ease, and freedom. And part of practice is to be able to do both. And chances are all of us have preferences for one way or the other. But can we practice in a way in such that we stretch our band, we stretch what's comfortable for us so that we can do both? So that we can find our way to the greatest ease and freedom using whichever approach is appropriate at that time. So these two different ways of one I'm calling maybe feeling or experiencing versus more of a conceptual understanding, we might say has some similarity in which poetry kind of is more about feeling, experiencing, versus prose or lists, 
just more maybe conceptual understanding. To be sure, we need both. But I like something that E.E. E. Cummings said. Uh, many of you all know he's a famous American poet in the 20th century. And he said, or wrote, a poet is somebody who feels and who expresses their feelings through words. This may sound easy. It isn't. A lot of people think or believe or know they feel, but that's thinking or believing or knowing, not feeling. And poetry is feeling. So in this way, I'd like to talk a little bit about poetry and practice and how practice meets our life, using kind of poems or a poem to help maybe point the way in which we might feel this way. So the poem I'd like to talk about is the one that I dropped in during our guided meditation. It's called Tree by Jane Hirschfeld. Jane Hirschfeld is an American poet. She lives here in Marin County. She is a Zen practitioner. She lived at Tosahara. In fact, I think she uh, overlapped with Gill down in uh, Tosahara at the same time, and she practiced at San Francisco Zen Center and Green Gulch Farm. So I kind of like to think that she's uh, one of our brethren, one of part of our community. She's a, also a translator. She translates or helps, she, she, with another person, translates poems from Japanese poems from about a thousand years ago of some women poets, some of their awakening poems. She has a, books of her poems, but she also has books about poetry. So here's Jane Hirschfield's poem called Tree. It is foolish to let a young redwood grow next to a house. Even in this one lifetime, you will have to choose that great calm being, this clutter of soup pots and books. Already the first branch chips brush at the window. Softly, calmly, immensity taps at your life. <laughs> Those of you who couldn't hear, I tried to tap here on this, if it wasn't that loud. But what does this mean? This idea of a tree. You know, like for the Buddha, he sat underneath a Bodhi tree, and a Bodhi tree has a lot of significance in Buddhism. The kind of like the icon for Inside Meditation Center. This place is a little Bodhi leaf from a Bodhi tree. For Jane Hirschfeld, here in the Bay Area, in Marin County, hers is a redwood tree. We have a redwood tree, as you know, just right out here. And something that I, I love about redwood trees, maybe all of you do too, there's something majestic about them. There's something, they also like, cathedral-like when you're in a grove of redwood trees. <laughs> the road, redwood trees are so powerful, too. Some of you may know that just, a, I don't know how many years ago, maybe five years ago, the redwood tree out here in front was causing the sidewalk to buckle. 
the roots were getting in the way and it was a tripping hazard and we thought, okay, we, we have to take care of this. We don't want people to trip on the sidewalk. So we uh, partnered with the city to come in and redo the sidewalk. Sidewalk. I think everybody was, as well, I should say, I was very surprised. The city was quite wise. They didn't build a sidewalk over the tree roots. They built around it. They recognize the power of these trees to like disrupt whatever gets in their ways. They weren't going to set up a battle with this tree. They just went around. So if you go out there right now, you'll notice that the sidewalk goes around this tree. So there's this way in which you know, a tree can represent practice, in which that it grows. And certainly we have in the teachings this idea of something that gets cultivated and developed in the same way that trees get cultivated and developed and grow. And then this idea of that to let a young redwood grow next to a house. For a house, we see in the Buddhist teachings, the Buddha, after his awakening, I spoke a little bit about before his awakening, his mind being wieldy, And after his awakening, the tradition holds that he said this short verse, kind of describing the experience of awakening. This is captured in the Dhammapada. House builder, you are seen. You will not build a house again. All the rafters are broken, the ridgepole dismantled. This mind, gone to the unconstructed, has reached the end of craving. So the Buddha is kind of like uh, equating this awakening with the end of the house builder. The house is a way, can represent the sense of self, this thing that we create, and that we believe that we're inhabiting in something that, we, that protects us and we can hide behind. And, but all the while, maybe not recognizing that it is constructed and that it doesn't have to be there. But we are so accustomed to it. Of course we have houses and we want to have houses. But there's a way in which a house can also be this way in which we set up our identities, the things that define who we are, which in the same way limit who we are. It is foolish to let a young redwood grow next to a house. This idea of foolish... I like in Pali the language of the Buddhist scriptures of the early Buddhism. They use the same word, and Pali means foolish and child. So it's just the same way that somebody doesn't know yet. They just haven't learned yet. Somebody, a fool, who just hasn't you know, gained some particular knowledge or some particular wisdom. It is foolish to let a young redwood grow next to a house. Even in this one lifetime, you'll have to choose that great calm being, this clutter of soup, pots, and books. So practice disrupts the way that we consider ourselves. 
even in this one time we will have to choose this recognition that if we want to continue to practice, we can't have our life be exactly the way that it was, including this house, this way that we consider ourselves. So often we want to be exactly the same, not change things, but just want less suffering. Of course we do. But not recognizing that having less suffering means that some things have to shift and change about ourselves. The way that we think about ourselves, the way we think about the world, think about others, the way that we feel about ourselves, feel about others, that's where the real freedom comes. And part of practice is to help us to gain the confidence that we can make these changes. Part of practice is to help us to feel more clearly what is the direction for more spaciousness and ease and freedom? What is the direction for leads to more dukkha, more suffering? There's so many ways that Certainly for me, when I first started practice, I had no idea all the subtle ways in which I was holding on to these ideas myself. I was still working in corporate America. I had a great job. And I didn't realize how I was identified with that job and how every little slight thing that didn't go well really kind of like really rocked me. But practice is a way that it kind of like grows and we start to see see more clearly, maybe gain more wisdom, and feel more clearly. And not only that, have the confidence to maybe let go of some of the ways that we think about ourselves, or we think about the world, or the way we set up of me versus you, us versus them. And we start to see how that is such a great source of suffering. For us, for everybody. But you have to choose that great, calm being, this tree. This trees have, especially redwood trees in my view, have a certain nobility, steadiness, calmness, stability. Maybe this is something that you've touched into with your meditation practice. Recognize, oh yeah, there, this calmness is possible, it's available. I'm not saying it's always easy and we always have access to it, but to even recognize that that is possible for our lives and possible to be more and more in our life. This clutter of soup, pots, and books. I love this line. In my mind, it's a little bit autobiographical. In my mind, Jane Hirschfield has a kitchen full of all kinds of pots and uh, and books being a poet it's not surprising maybe she has a lot of books i have a lot of books i can't help myself and so practice isn't asking us to let go of all of our soup pots and books whatever the equivalent of that might be for you practice isn't saying that you can't have any of those things instead I think what the key word here is clutter. Things that aren't tended to. Things that are like getting in the way of something else that we want to do. Maybe getting in the way of some of this calmness or stability that we know is possible. So it's not so much that we have to get rid of all these objects in our life that fill up our house. 
Instead, it's about a shift in our relationship to them. Maybe we're not clinging. Or maybe we're not dishonoring them and just letting them fill up our life instead of taking care of them. So the clutter, maybe it's literally, maybe it's figuratively. But this, it's kind of like choosing, recognizing, seeing, feeling. Yeah, there's this uh, something deep inside. Maybe it's not even deep inside. Maybe it's just found when we go for a walk versus some of the agitation that we feel in so many areas of our life, possibly. We might ask ourselves, what is our life filled with that's the opposite of calm? Can we choose? What would it mean to choose? Choose the calm, not the clutter. And so, there's also this way in which practice asks us to soften, let go of all the ways in which we build these selves, ways in which we limit ourselves, and instead to feel the freedom that is available. Maybe we've all had just a glimpse of what's available. Chances are you have, otherwise you wouldn't be coming to a place like this. So here's another poem that's uh, very short. This one's translated by Jane Hirschfield, the same poet who wrote the other poem. She translated this with Mariko Aratani. And this poem was written in Japanese by Izumi Shikabu around the year 1000. I love this poem. It's very, it uses metaphor and it's very evocative, I think. And the poem goes like this. Although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. Although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. This ruined house, maybe this way of we're letting our sense of self or this identity, these things that we hide behind, maybe we're letting some uh, ruined planks. The roof isn't quite as tight as it used to be. And moonlight is shining in. Some of you know, like in Buddhism, often the full moon is a symbol of awakening, enlightenment. But no matter about that, if there's something, at least I feel this when I go outside, like, oh, it's a full moon. I've done that a number of times here when I taught on a Monday nights and uh, to walk outside after teaching and to see this big moon. It just feels like, oh, something special. And so the way that this, when this house kind of starts to crack and the roof still has leaks in it, Maybe it's windy, which means we feel things. But the moonlight is shining through. There's this way in which there's this um, 
sense of freedom and beauty, possibility that the full moon can represent. Although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house by Izumi Shikibu, another woman poet. So then returning back to this poem, Tree by Jane Hirschfield, it continues and it says, Already the first branch tips brush at the window. By the time I read with tree, the branch tips are brushing on the window. The roots are already underneath, right? They're in the sewage system. They're under the house. They're making the sidewalk buckle. You know, here at IMC, we have to call Roto-Rooter on a regular basis because that redwood tree out there is like getting into our pipes. So maybe before, by the time we already notice that something's here, it's already touched us. It's already a part of our life in some way. But maybe it's under. We haven't quite seen it. The way that roots, we don't see it. Maybe until they are disruptive or something like this. Also this idea of the branch tips uh, meeting the house. So much about practices about meeting. Meeting ourselves. Maybe in a way that we haven't before. And let's be honest, it's not always good news. I know for me it wasn't always good news, noticing all these white lies I was doing and all these ways in which I was holding and clinging on to these ideas about myself and I wanted people to make sure that they saw me in one particular way and certainly not this other particular way, which I was trying to secretly hide. But I also like this expression that Jack Cornfield uses, kind of like meeting ourselves. He uses this expression, the unfinished business of the heart. There's a way in which meeting ourselves is a way of recognizing this unfinished business of the heart. And maybe it allows this business of the heart to get finished, to be metabolized and worked through and met and seen So often we're trying to discard or disown or somehow excise these portions of ourselves because they're painful or they're ugly or whatever it might be. We think they might be. But so much of our practice is meeting all of these aspects of ourselves when we're ready, when we're ready. We don't have to jump into the most difficult parts of our lives at the outset. Instead, we allow practice to grow. We water it, we let it have sunshine, good soil, and then practice grows as it grows. We don't have to make it grow. Maybe it's just a way in which we come back. We come to IMC on Sunday mornings or whatever it might be, listen to YouTube. And then there's this way in which this poem ends. It's, for me, it's kind of like powerful. I love this line. Softly, calmly, immensity taps at your life. 
this invitation for all of us to maybe like step into the what's possible for us, our biggest life, our best life. And it's softly, calmly. It's not with a sledgehammer. Sometimes it feels that way. But maybe, you know, there's this, maybe a certain insistence of an invitation asking us to be the best versions of ourselves, so bringing our best wisdom, bringing our best compassion to whatever life brings us. After all, what else can we do? We can't control the whole world. I know we try, certainly I try. <laughs> it doesn't work. We know that. And instead, there can be this invitation to bring our best selves. And I love this word immensity, like maybe it's bigger than what we can imagine. Maybe it's bigger than what we suspect is available or what it would be like to have more freedom. And in this way, in this poem, and I would say in practice, this freedom is, in t- is tied up with this house that we're building and constructing and, you know, renovating maybe, but still, you know, having constructed. It's a way in which it can be an inhibition to freedom. So freedom is a way of maybe we let some of this building just naturally deteriorate. We wouldn't want to do this in our actual houses, but in the sense of selves, is there a way that we can let some of these moonbeams of freedom shine in and allowing ourselves to be touched by it. Softly, calmly, immensity taps at your life. Thank you. And so maybe as an ending here, you can just turn to some people near you and let's all take care of each other. Let's not let anybody be left behind with nobody's talking to them. We don't want that. And just say, what did you think of this poem? Maybe it's like poetry is just not your cup of tea. Perfectly fine. Or maybe like, I don't know, I don't get it. That's perfectly fine too. Or you might feel like, I don't know. I'm kind of curious. I'm going to go outside and look at this tree now. Or whatever it might be. Whatever it might be. Just turn to somebody and maybe say a little bit about how this poem touched you. Thank you.